Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. Now, if you have your Bibles, if you'll take those, I want to read two passages of Scripture. One from 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you'll turn there, and the second from Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3, and then Philippians 3, verse 20. And I'm going to read them back to back. So I don't don't want to stop in the middle because I, I want you to see how they blend together. Now look, the holiday, our national holiday is, we know we are highly cognizant of the fact, uh, as I drove in this morning with Brother Welburn into the, onto the campus, I, we saw people walking in and I said, you know, the whole world is a free chapel. There are people from multiple countries here, dozens of languages, 65 or 70 countries watching on the internet. And, and, and yet, this is, this is America. This is the United States. And July the 4th is our national holiday of independence. When we threw off our colonial masters and found our own identity in the community of nations. And that's to be celebrated. It should be celebrated. So as we talk about our nation and patriotism and, and how we celebrate that as Christians, if this is not your um, citizenship nation, then you think about how this applies to you and your country. But this morning, rejoice with us as we celebrate the birthday of the United States of America. Now, how do we put together the issue of what it means to be Christians and what it means to be citizens of any country? Here are two passages of Scripture. One, Timothy chapter 2, we'll begin reading there, and then to Philippians 3.20. I'm just going to read straight through. Therefore, I exhort, I exhort, first of all, you that make supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings for everyone, for kings. It means for rulers, those who are, lead the nations, for kings and for all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. But our citizenship... Our ultimate citizenship, that means. Our citizenship is Christians. But our citizenship is in heaven, from where we also await for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you will come with your Holy Spirit and brush aside every barrier to divine communication. All of our carefully constructed mechanisms of self-defense Sweep them aside. Deal with us, O Lord. We believe you for it. We thank you for it. Lord, we pray that you will help us to understand from your word and from your spirit what it means to be citizens of heaven and citizens of nations here below. We thank you for it in advance. In the wonderful name, Jesus, the strong Son of God. Amen. July the 2nd. In 1776, the Continental Congress voted to declare its independence from the colonial power, England. John Adams, president, later to become President John Adams, 
believed that the national holiday would always be July the 2nd. It turned out to be July the 4th, but July the 2nd was the day the vote was actually taken. When that vote was taken, they realized, the founding fathers in that room realized they needed a document, some way to declare, to state their independence from the United Kingdom and, and why they were declaring it. So they commissioned a small team, uh, one member of which was Thomas Jefferson, to write this declaration of independence. It took, uh, it took until the 4th of July for that document to be approved. It was edited and re-edited and changed and words taken out. Nearly a third of the, of the original document written by Thomas Jefferson was edited out. There were 500 words which he wrote that were omitted from the ultimate document, leaving 1,337 words in the, in the entire Declaration of Independence. Some of the edits that they left out were probably good. One, however, was a mistake, and it was a mistake for which we were to suffer a uh, hundred years later. Thomas Jefferson, though he himself was a slaveholder, had written into the original document for the Declaration of Independence a condemnation of the slave trade. It was edited out, and that was a mistake. But the document that remained remains one of the great documents of our nation and of the world of personal individual freedom and an understanding of national identity. I, I just want to remind you of a couple of things about the Declaration of Independence. The first is that in the opening sentence of the Declaration of Independence, there is the acknowledgement that the decision was being made in the light of and in the eyes of God. It opens the very first sentence of the Declaration. It says, this is right, what we're doing to declare our freedom because of the injustices and tyranny we're experiencing, we are making this decision in the guidance of and under the eyes of God. In the very last of the Declaration of Independence, which people, with which people are less familiar, we find this. And for the support of this with a firm reliance upon the protection of divine providence, meaning God, the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. The protection of divine providence. In other words, we must remember as a country and we must recapture in our national conscience the reality that the initial primary document of the founding of this country, the Declaration of Independence, both begins and ends with the statement that this nation is one nation under God. There were 56 men who signed the document. Not all of them signed on the 4th of July. There is some confusion, as there always is in historical things, particularly in Washington, D.C. There was 56 people who finally signed the document, some of them even as late as August due to travel difficulties in the colonies. 
The youngest of these were both, the two youngest were both from South Carolina. Thomas Lynch and Edward Rutledge were 26. The oldest and the wisest was about my age. (laughs) Benjamin Franklin was six months older than I am now. People ask me why I often get so emotional preaching on these issues. But you have to remember, young people, I I knew Benjamin Franklin. He was a great friend of mine. We called him Benny, of course, in those days. He, he went on to become Benjamin Franklin. But, but listen, to, listen to some more of the last words. We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Th- those, those were not hollow words for those men. You have to understand that they knew they were signing a document that would be, which was going to be sent to England and was going to be read by Parliament and by King George III and was going to be understood in England as a document of high treason. They understood that they were signing away everything they owned, their lives, and their honor, in other words, meaning we'll never go back on this, no matter what it costs us. And we are in mutual agreement with each other under the side of God. This is a solemn, sovereign, and very dangerous thing to do. When it came time to sign, the president of the Congress, John Hancock, stepped up and someone made the casual compliment, uh, comment that uh, George III's eyesight was not all that good. And John Hancock said, well then, I want to make sure he can read my name. So all the other names, 55 other names are small. This In the middle of the page, there's John Hancock's name. This, this, these were bold men. These were brave men who were laying on the line everything they had. Some of them, by the way, phenomenally wealthy. Uh, given the current rate of inflation over the years. You may or may not realize this. Um, Even including the current president, who is phenomenally wealthy, the wealthiest president that the United States ever had was George Washington, given taking the estate that he had at that time and translating it into the 21st century. He, He was the wealthiest president that we've ever had. The current president is second. That probably irritates him. <laughs> but I'm, the point I'm making is that that is what they were laying on the line. It's not like England didn't know where these people lived. It's not like they couldn't find their homes, their farms, their families, their wives, their children, and find them. They did. Remember, the two youngest of these were 26. These were not old politicians who signed documents in Washington, D.C. and retreated home to their districts and their mansions. Nine of them died in the war. That's 20% of those who signed the Declaration of Independence. Five were captured and tortured by the British. Richard Stockton died as a result of the torture. Twelve of their homes and all of their property of men, of those men lost everything they had, everything that they had. Francis Lewis' wife 
was captured by the British, and she suffered horrible indignities and brutality at their hands, and she died as a result of what they did to her. Carter Braxton and Thomas Nelson, quote-unquote, loaned the new government vast sums of money. How many of you understand that if you loan the federal government money, you can count that gone? Of course, they were never paid a penny of it back, and they died in poverty. John Hart, one of the signers, risked his life to try and return and see his dying wife. He found his farm surrounded by Hessian soldiers, and he was not able to get through to see her. And while she lay dying in her bed, they burned all the outbuildings, all the crops, and, and stole her children, and she died. When Thomas Hart, who was 65, younger than Benjamin Franklin, at that time had to escape through the night, he slept in caves and forests. And when he returned at the end of the war, all 13 of his children, his wife was dead, his fortune was gone, all 13 of his children had been stolen, and he never saw one member of his family ever again. Dr. Witherspoon was the only minister to the ordained clergyman to sign the Declaration of Independence. He was not pastoring a church at that time, but he was a clergyman. And he was serving as the president of the College of New Jersey, which was to become Princeton. In order to punish him and to humiliate him, the British burned the library at Princeton. Thomas Nelson was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence who went into the army. And he was a, a commander, one of the commanders, at the battle at Yorktown, where, as you know, Cornwallis was finally cornered and defeated and surrendered to George Washington. When the uh, American battery, the artillery, was pounding the buildings and houses in Yorktown in advance of the battle, uh, from where he was, looking through his spyglass, Thomas Nelson could see that one house was not being touched, that the cannon were hitting it, but one house was not being touched. He mounted his horse and rode down to the commander of the battery, and he said, what, why are you leaving that house? And they said, what is that house? He said, that's the house which is being used as the headquarters for General Cornwallis. He said, then by all means, hit it. Why aren't you hitting it? And they said, well, sir, we were doing it out of honor for you. That's your house. And he said, give me the fuse. And he lit the cannon that blew up his own house. That's a patriot. That's a patriot. What does it mean to be a patriot? Certainly, it means to love one's country. America has no corner on patriotism. We believe that there are patriots in every country. It means to love the country. It means to honor that part of its history which is to be honored. Anyone, no matter how deeply you cherish this country, anyone who believes that we are a perfect country with an unblemished track record is benighted. We are not a perfect country. Our history is not perfect. But we are still, having said all of that, with all of our weaknesses, we are still the nation on the face of the earth, which is the hope of the community of nations. Third, a patriot must be responsible to the laws of the country. In other words, we must be practicing patriots. 
not simply emotional patriots. This can be a, a test of our character, how we respond to the laws of the nation. Some of you are citizens because you were born to it. You should be grateful and humble, for there are people, millions and millions all over the world who envy your status. Some of you have emigrated legally and faithfully become citizens of this country. You are us. We are you. You are Americans. It's not that we have to welcome you. You are this nation. In 1975, when I was a very young preacher in Mexico, before most of you were born, I had a translator, quite an elderly man in his late 70s. His name was Francisco Rosales. I loved him and cared for him a great deal. His Spanish was not only excellent, his English was excellent as well. And I, I asked him, Francisco, where did you come to such fine English? He said, well, from the middle of elementary school until I was in early high school, I lived in the United States and I was surrounded by and lived only with Americans. And he said, my, my English is American English. I learned it in, in school. And I said, why, why did you return to Mexico? He said, in 1915, when I was a young student in school, I attended the Azusa Street Pentecostal Revival. And he said, there I received Christ as my Savior, and I was baptized in the Holy Ghost. And he said, the Lord spoke to me in no uncertain terms and said, you cannot be a legal citizen of the kingdom of heaven and be an illegal citizen of the United States. He said, the Lord convicted me. You have broken the laws of the country in which you live. And God convicted me to return to Mexico. And on the way back, God showed me, not only return to Mexico, stay in Mexico and minister to your own people. Now, look at these two passages of Scripture which we read. One says that we should pray for those that are in leadership over us. And the other says, but ultimately, your, your citizenship is not in any country here below, but in heaven. In other words, there is a tension between being patriotic citizens of the country in which we live or in which we were born and feeling the ultimate tension of our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. That's the reason that in any country which is dominated by tyranny, Christians are always held in slight suspicion because tyrants and dictators know that at the, that we know that at the end of all things, that we will only obey the nation in which we live so far. In other words, a country may have bad laws, all kinds of bad laws. If you think that the government of this country has never passed a bad law, where have you been? But there are two kinds of bad laws. There are bad laws which allow evil. I've never made any 
I've never made any apology for it. I opposed the lottery when it was being proposed. I preached against it. I believe it's a bad law. I believe it is government-run gambling, and I believe it preys on the poor and ignorant. I've never done anything but oppose the lottery. I think it's wrong to have a lottery. I think it's, I think it's a mistake to buy a lottery ticket. I'm telling you that. I've never made any apology, but the law doesn't force us to buy a lottery ticket. The other kind of bad law is the law that makes you do something wrong. So I think that the law which allows abortion is wrong, and I think God will hold this country accountable for it. But it's not communist China where women are forced to have abortions. So there's a difference between a law that allows something wicked and one that enforces something wicked. So let me give you an example. Where I'm faithful to this country, you are faithful, we are citizens, we are patriotic, we are loyal to the laws. But the day that they pass a law that we must bow down and worship the Statue of Liberty, that's where, like the three Hebrew children, we must say, never, not now, not ever. I love my country. I'm a, I'm a patriot. I'm an emotional patriot. Sometimes when I read the stories of the founding fathers, I get all teary. I apologize for it and I, I struggle with it, but I, I love my country. I love the United States of America. But having said that, every Christian must remember that in any ultimate sense, we do not serve the American eagle. We serve the lamb, which is crucified for us. Now, what about being a law-abiding citizen? You hear the phrase, a law-abiding citizen. As I've said, when it comes to some ultimately evil law that forces us to do wickedness, then we must disobey. Now we are facing a great stress in the streets and particularly on college campuses. There are those who call themselves Antifa, A-N-T-I-F-A. It is an abbreviation for anti-fascists. They are committing arson, vandalism, smashing windows, and attacking and beating those with whom they disagree, and those people they call fascists, when the fact of the matter is Antifa themselves are the fascists. They are not just anti-something, anti-president, anti-Congress, anti-American. They are not just anti-some political party, anti-Republicans or anti-Democrats. They are fascists who demand a dictatorship of the streets. They are, they are not Americans in the stream of the American Revolution. They are a violent, obscene aberration of the American Revolution. They are not patriots. They're fascists like we fought in World War II. I'm glad that we live in a country. I'm proud to live in a country where people want to be here. People all over the world. There are people who live in remote villages in countries that you can't find on a map. And deep within their breast burns the, the dream of someday being in America. In 1981, I was speaking at a 
a congress at a small college in Kumasigana, Wesley College in Kumasigana. Before I spoke, there was a skit that the students had written and performed, a little dramatic skit about heaven and about people wanting to go to heaven and be in heaven. And the model that they used for heaven was the United States. And it moved me deeply to realize that there were people in that country who think so highly of us that when they think of heaven, they think of us. That moves me. My family, my family background on my mother's side are immigrants, legally immigrated from Ireland. Some of my fondest childhood memories are of lying on a pallet in the little wooden shack of my great-grandmother in a little town in East Texas that doesn't even exist anymore, in the middle of a cotton field, lying on a pallet and listening to my Irish great-grandmother who was five feet tall, had red hair and a temper you did not want to mess with, <laughs> lying on the pallet at night in a hot East Texas night and listening to my Irish great-grandmother sing Irish folk songs. I'm proud to live in a country where the current president's mother was a legal immigrant from Scotland. I'm proud to live in a country where the current first lady is a legal immigrant from Slovenia. You may not realize this historical fact, but the current first lady, Melania, is the first first lady that we've had since John Quincy Adams' wife, Louisa, who was not born in the United States. Louisa Adams was born in London, but her father was an American diplomat. So Melania is the first first lady that we have ever had whose parents were not Americans and who was born in a foreign country. I'm proud to know that we welcome and receive immigrants here legally who want to be a part of the American experience. I wonder how many of you have ever been to or experienced or watched a naturalization ceremony. Let me tell you what a naturalization ceremony is. That's where people who have migrated here legally are sworn in and become citizens. After the first service, I had three different people come up to me and say, I went through the naturalization. One lady from South Korea, born in South Korea, and she said, that was one of the greatest moments of my life was to be sworn in as a citizen. And she said, I'm proud. Another lady from Guyana uh, and uh, a man from, uh, uh, I believe he said Colombia. I'm not sure. And uh, But those three came. Now, let me just ask here in this small and intimate surrounding, just a few of you, how many of you have ever been to or attended a naturalization ceremony? Will you raise your hand? There's about, looks like 20 or 30 well, I'm going to show you a little brief video now. This is not professional. It's amateur. It's grainy, bad quality. I'm preparing you. But it is at the end of a naturalization ceremony. Now, there are all kinds of things that have gone up to this moment. They have to go through a course. They have to pass a test, everything. And then they come to the naturalization ceremony, and someone swears them in. They take an oath. They stand with their right hand raised, and they take an oath. It deals basically with three things. We're not going to play all of that. But the oath that you will not hear deals basically with three things. First, they renounce 
national loyalty to any previous citizenship or country. They say, I'm, I'm no longer of that country. I'm not loyal to the king or the country or the government of any foreign country. I renounce it. Secondly, they vow to serve the United States where called upon, either to bear arms or through non-combatant service. And the third is, they vow to honor the country's laws and its constitution. I think that we ought to ask all of the judges to retake the vow. But then after these future new and future citizens finish the vow, the, the person who has been leading them in the vow stands down, and another person, official representative of the government, steps forward and says to them, I now officially pronounce that you are citizens of the United States. It's, if you've ever been in one of these ceremonies, it's, it's moving. It's moving. And the lady from the first service from South Korea said, is the most unforgettable moment in my life. I'm just going to play for you just that moment where the vow is finished and the person steps forward and says, you're now United States citizens. Will you turn your eyes to the screen? So help me God. I have signed the order and I declare that you are citizens of the United States. You know, we take it for granted. We're born here. We live here. We prosper here. We live under its laws and its defense, and we know that our army will protect us, and we take it for granted. What a wonderful thing for these people to realize what a blessing, what a gift. And I think that we ought to thank God right now to be in this great country. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.